When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to the Family Brain with your host, Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Family Brain. I'm Megan Gibson, and today I'll be talking with Michael Gurian. Michael Gurian is one of the world's foremost gender experts. He's the founder of the Gurian Institute. He's written 32 books, and several of those are New York Times bestsellers. He has been a keynote speaker. He trains teachers and students and um, faculty all over the world. And he also does a number of professional development seminars to help teachers get more skills around addressing the differences between um, boys' brains and girls' brains, and he really brings a lot of great neuroscience and brain research into the discussion about the differences between men and women and boys and girls, and I just think with all of the things going on in our world and how we're all working on and have our minds on trying to help our kids, both girls and boys, um, be better than we are, basically, and learn um all the things that we feel like we missed. So I feel like he has some great insights into just the differences in boys and girls' brains and how we need to pay attention to those differences as we work on changing the culture and helping boys and girls grow and develop. So here is Michael Gurian. Today I have Michael Gurian here and I am so thankful you're here to talk about your work um, with, I guess, gender differences. And how, how would you describe yourself as what, what your research is about? Yeah, I mean, I'm called a, a gender expert. That's what I am. Okay. That's what I, you know, definitely. I mean, I'm a marriage and family counselor, so um, 29th year of private practice. So um, I'm kind of in that category. And, and then the Gurian Institute is teacher training. It's... Um, parent training, you know, it's but and it's boys and girls learn differently. It's the minds of boys and girls. So I take a brain-based approach to understanding uh, the sexes, to understanding the gender spectrum, and then specifically helping different populations like schools, as you know, you know, helping teachers to understand boys and girls and target their teaching um, and the male brain and the female brain. Uh, so I guess gender expert would fit. Perfect. And how did you get interested originally in that study 
Had you always been interested or was it just one step after the next and you found yourself well, there? How did that how did that work? Yeah, I mean, that's a it's a question that I think about a lot, you know, because because now at 60 I I look back a little bit and and when I was uh in college and grad school, you know, what happened was I was there. So this is back, you know, so 40 years ago and the the conversation about about sex and gender was very much a socialization conversation. You know, it was really about changing gender roles. That was the era we were in, and, and so that was a great thing, um, equalizing everything. So that was a great thing. At the same time, I I had lived around, you know, kind of all over the world because my parents were academics and foreign service, and they traveled a lot. And, and wherever I would go, I would I could sense that boys and girls were, um, you, you know, different that that I not knowing Hindi for instance moving to India as a boy could play with the other boys in ways that that were just instinctive there so there was something going on you know and I carried that forward and so when I was in uh, college and grad school I was would ask questions about that well what about what's genetic in male female you know what about what's nature in male female and there there wasn't much conversation about that then so I started seeking it out I started trying to figure it out and um had to at that time had to send away for you know through microfish and all of that right it was a mm. previous era and finding who are the scientists out there who are studying this and it turned out that um yeah uh not not in the 70s i couldn't access them then but the time we got to the 80s and late 80s i was able to find who these folks were ruben gurr raquel gurr there's a number of them who started this back 30 35 years ago using pet scans and spec scans and mris you know and so over the decades now, it's just this massive field, the, the brain science of male-female. And, um, and so I got interested in it initially because I was, I was suspicious of something. I just knew that it wasn't all socialization. Right. And I wanted to figure out what else is there and, and then how can we help people, everyone, because, of course, everyone is male and female. Right. right? So we, we can help everyone if we can understand the male brain and the female brain. Well, that's what I think is so interesting in the presentation that I saw you present at my kid's school is the neuroscience behind this work. Because I took um, a number of women's studies classes, and it was just called women's studies um, in college. And I mainly started doing that because I, I showed up one day to sign up for classes, and the class I wanted was filled. And so I went to this not really knowing what to expect. And I ended up enjoying it. But a lot of it is um, theory. It's not the science behind and and I don't I don't know what you think about this, but I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with theory. But when you have a picture of a brain to show someone, that kind of packs a punch. Theory kind of goes out the window when you can look at a brain. Is that true or not true? Yeah, yeah, I know what you're getting at. It's it's a complex thing because because um and and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. I think what you're referring to is sociological theory that 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 makes some ideological claims, yes. and then you see some brain scans, and you say, "Oh, oops, <laughs> that sociological theory with its ideological claims was an agenda, but it wasn't really based in science." Is that what you're saying? Yes, that is what I'm saying, and I you said it yeah. much lovelier than I did. Yes. Well, no, 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 you got it. Well, and that's the complexity because you know there are even right now um, here we are in 2018, and there are there are this ideological stuff is is out there, and it comes especially from from women's studies programs, gender studies programs, uh, and, and from the academic world. I mean, the academic world right now is very into experimenting with the concept that there is no male and female. 
and there is no male brain, no female brain. Um, and so, so I get every once in a while someone will go after me on Twitter or something and, you know, say, oh, you're just wrong, you know. But I can tell that they've only, only read this opinion stuff and this agenda stuff. And, and then, you know, like you said, I'll go to a community and show the PET scans and the spec scans, and that's that. <laughs> you know, so then, then it's people very say, compelling. Oh, okay, it's, yes, it's, it's very, very compelling. compelling because then they understand there's a kind of schism or polarization in our in our culture, uh, especially in what's coming out of academe. And I'm a former academic myself, so no condemnation. But I just think that's for for a number of reasons that date back really 40 to 50 years that aren't really contemporary reasons, but that date back to that early um, feminist sociology and the way that it was trying to repair issues that had in the past, um, you know, that, that that theory is still here with us. This kind of ideological stuff is still here with us. And the folks who write in that area specifically don't show any scans of the brain because, you know, all they can really do is present um, their opinion and, and they don't want you to look at scans of the brain. But I understand why that sociology exists. It exists because folks think, well, if you, if you allow male-female difference, then women are going to be oppressed. Mm. And that's that 50-year-old concept. And that 50-year-old concept is still strong. Um, now, the Gurian Institute, as you know, we have we are more data-based. And so we, if people go to gurianinstitute.com, they just click the success page and they see the data. They see that if, if schools, for instance, where we can collect data, if the, if the folks are trained in male-female brain difference and then its applications to education, that you you actually get the gains that those these other folks are looking for. You, girls' test scores go up, their work in STEM goes up, um, you know, and, and also boys who are mainly the issues we're having in schools. Uh, boys' test scores go up, their grades go up. So both boys and girls benefit from it. But the old sociology is that, that can't be the case. Right. <laughs> it must be wrong to teach male-female brain difference. It will cause harm. And of right. course, we've proven over 20 years that that's incorrect. Right. And it seems like the flaw, I guess, is that. If you just because you accept the science doesn't mean that the inequality was not there or is not there. It's it they can be two separate things. Oh yeah, and yeah. I mean, we've done this in corporations. Um, when corporations get trained in this, I wrote a book called Leadership and the Sexes that was based on our ten years of, of providing this training in corporations. And yeah, the women rise further in the corporations when they get this training. Uh, they do better in their STEM professions. You know. Uh, especially in longevity and in staying with that. Um, we have case studies from the finance world where the training, you know, the training was done and more women were retained. Uh, and finance, you know, higher level of finance, right, are, are more male-driven, um, higher testosterone, more risk-taking, et cetera. But we saw gains for women in that field. So, so the, the, we've actually proven that when you apply this stuff, we actually get the gains that the folks are looking for on the ideological side. We get those gains. But still, there's a polarization and disconnect for them. Got it. So I guess I'm curious, what are the biggest differences that you do see? What are, what, if you were to sort of sum up, this is, these yeah. are the big takeaways that we know from our research. Yeah. Well, there are, there are hundreds and, and um, saving our sons and the minds of girls have, have, you know, Many, many dozens of pages of endnotes for people. Uh, so I'll just give a few, but just know that in terms of sex and gender differences, so male and female brain, there are actually many, many. But I'll, let me give a couple that 
people immediately will intuitively go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. One of them is that uh, um, the male brain, well, we should first say for folks who don't know, what happens is the X and the Y chromosome, which actually guide development in utero of male and female, uh, those chromosomes sort of control a lot of this. And they have markers on them. And uh, if, if, uh, so if it's an XX, a, a girl, um, uh, she's going to have certain markers to set up not just her, her anatomy, her physical body, but also her brain anatomy, the way her brain is set up. And then if it's XY, the Y introduces boy and male. And so those markers will kick in in utero, and over a period of about six months, we'll be formatting, templating that brain to be a male brain. So that's where the decision happens. It happens via the chromosomes, and it happens in utero. And because it comes in on the chromosomes, this is why the, this research is so robust worldwide, because we all have X and Y. So, so I always talk about nature, nurture, and culture. We start with nature, then we move to nurture. And, and nurture the nature, and then there's culture that wraps around. And when we look at cultures all over the world, we still see these nature-based differences because no matter the culture, like me in India, uh, no matter the culture, we still have X and Y chromosomes, so they're still setting up male and female brain. Um, and this doesn't mean males and females can't do the jobs each other can do. It's actually not about that. It's, it's more about what their own biological tendencies are going to be and how to nurture their tendencies, nurture who they are. Um, so, key difference that we find all over the world is this this male female difference in verbals and in verbal emotive. So, verbals are our word production. Uh, that's uh, reading, writing, and speaking. All of that is producing words, and females do that on both the left and the right. So, both the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, they have these verbal centers, and they're active, and they're connecting to the the limbic system, the midbrain, which is where like the memory center is, hippocampus, where the sensorial centers are, you know, for taking in sensorial information, facial cues, for instance, so on. And then the emotive centers, the emotions that, are, that that brain is feeling, that person is feeling. So females are doing that on both sides of the brain, and males are doing that primarily on the left, and especially front left. So, so females have more access to, uh, to word-to-feeling ratios, word-to-sensorial ratios, word-to-memory. So, for instance, this is intuitive for people because if they, if people have been together, and let's say you have a heterosexual couple, they've been together, they've been together a while, uh, they have conflicts and arguments, and almost invariably, the female in that couple is going to remember more sensorial detail and more emotive detail from a, a trail of emotive experiences that fit for her in this present conflict she's having with her husband or her partner. And and the husband or partner, the male, will not have as much access to that. And he'll be trying to talk, and she'll be talking about this and this and this and this, and he won't remember most of that. Um, so his, And he's trying to, and then he's trying to voice it in words, but he won't have as much access to all of that. Hmm. And so I always say to people, just go get in an argument and keep a journal of your argument and then see how much. So, so this is a big one because it applies to schools in a big way. Our, our schools have moved toward a verbal literacy platform. So words are crucial and, you know, reading and reading what the teacher says. I mean, it's all, it's all crucial. Even math uh, classes now have moved toward adding essays uh, in order to uplift female scores. And so, of course, there's a lot of guys, they're not as good at writing the essay, but they can get the mathematical equation 
and then we have to deal with this verbal literacy platform where we're, where we're saying, okay, we're, we're adding more words, could work, but watch out, you know, a lot of these guys don't have this access, this immediate access to these words, and so their grades go down, and, um, uh, and we're battling this all the way around, trying to create a school system where the teachers, the administrators, everyone understands how the male and the female brain work, so they can implement, they can use assessments that are appropriate. Uh, you know, we even find this all the way back in preschool where the assumption is that boys should read on average as well as girls at four years old. And if they don't, they must have a brain disorder. Well, it's not true. You know, boys are, male development of, of the verbals, it can be a year to a year and a half behind females. And that's cross-cultural. That's all over the world because of the brain difference. So anyway, that, that's one that I've applied in a number of ways there, this, this verbal difference. Well, and it's funny, I, as you were talking, I'm picturing my husband and I having an argument, and it makes a lot of sense, you know, and then oftentimes people can feel, well, people, I'm talking about myself, can feel like the husband might feel attacked because if they're not accessing the words as quickly, it can feel like kind of a setup, right? If you're, if you're going about things in a different way. Yeah, it creates a lot of conflict. I, it, it, and if we all understood each other as female and male, you know, not just as person, person is great, but also as female and male, and then we understood it as female brain and male brain, no, knowing that there are 7.5 billion people on Earth, so of course there are more than 3.5 billion ways to be a female brain and more than 3.5 billion ways to be a male brain. So all of that is true. But, but still, you know, there are also these... Um, tendencies of male and female brain that are that are robust and that are nature-based so they're they're hormone-based they're um, genetics-based if we if everyone went into marriages understanding them uh, we would have less distress and less stress in marriages yeah because the way you described it gave me a lot more compassion for my husband than I typically might have or show so yeah I can yeah. see how that's helpful. So one of the things I'm curious about, I've had a couple interviews recently with um, parents who are raising transgender children. What does the research show in terms of like male brains and female brains in people who identify as transgender? Right. Well, even the trans brain is a male and female brain. This is what's so interesting. In the kind of ideological polarization or conflict we're having right now, kind of in the media, you know, in the culture, there is this sense that a trans person is not male, female, and that's incorrect. So from a science-based point of view, when we scan the brains of someone who is trans and you scan it, you can see that, that and I'm going to have to use an example, a female to male or a male to female. So I'll start with male to female. Okay. You have a, a male, right, male anatomy, male reproductive organs, and, but that male has known um, that anatomical male has known for years and years and years that that there's something going on in the brain because uh, he, who is going to transition to she probably uh, later, um, senses that he is a she. And, and so therefore, dresses like what we think of as a she, uh, uh, takes on the characteristics of she, enjoys a lot of the things of she, you know, and so, so, Smart people will look at that and say, hmm, okay, we've got the anatomy, but something happened in utero uh, to format that brain to be more of a female brain. So we have male body, but it's got to be more of a female brain because look at this. This has gone on for years and years and years. And I'll say in brackets a slight possibility for 
bracketing would be sexual abuse. I mean, it is possible that if that child very young was abused sexually for a period of time, then this, what we're talking about as trans, might be related to sexual abuse. Okay. But otherwise, um, uh, you know, it's, it's likely going to be in the brain. And then later, what we'll be able to do by the time that person hits puberty um, and, you know, moves into adolescence, we should be able to scan that brain. At three or four, no, not really. But later, we're going to be able to scan that brain. And sure enough, what we're going to find is that a number of those brain centers are functioning female. Hmm. So this person has a male body, but a, um, a lot of the brain centers are functioning female. So then we can explain it and say, oh, look at that. Look at that scan. This, these structures are functioning female. No wonder this person thinks of herself as female. And now the person may start transitioning. So now we're moving into, you know, we really don't want people to look at transitioning or their kids transitioning until puberty hits, you know, until we're in at least mid-adolescence. Because we've got to really see what's going on in, in puberty and that hormone flow is a big deal. Um, and, and that hormone flow in puberty and the brain scans are a way of understanding whether the person is trans or whether the person is, is um, lesbian, gay, or bisexual. Because a number of kids who show what we think of as trans when they're four or five or six, um, it's very young to know that age, they may be, uh, they may be gay. And so, but sexual orientation can't be known then. You have to wait until puberty hits and all of that happens to the brain because that's handled in a separate part of the brain. So, you know, all of this becomes a kind of a mess in the public culture. And so the public culture just says, well, there must be no male-female brain because, look, we have trans. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that's just not correct. We, we just have to look at the science and we'll see that there are actually four things operating. One is the physical anatomy. Uh, and the reproductive organs. Two is the sex that's on the brain, so the sex of the brain. And then three is the specific nucleus in the brain that handles um, uh, homosexuality, uh, so differentiates a same-sex attraction from heterosexuality, which is obviously other sex attraction. And then the fourth thing, the fourth thing is gender fluidity. What we hear a lot about, that, oh, we're all fluid and there is no male-female. That's actually a social construct that's not actually wired into the brain. The trans person is in number two, the sex on the brain. The trans person is there, and um, we will be able to scan that brain and see that. And if folks are listening to this, you can find these, these references in Saving Our Sons or the Minds of Girls, uh, and then they lead you, you know, sort of into a careful Google search so you don't get a crazy stuff. And then you can find these studies that have been done where the folks in their labs have done the brain scans of trans and said, oh, look. Okay, it's clear on the scan. Have you ever worked with someone who has just feel, felt so, or a person or a family who has felt so validated by this type of scan? Like the proof that, and you, you would think, well, we don't necessarily, we shouldn't need this. But I would imagine that if this is, has been a struggle and an uphill battle your entire life, to have the science to show that what I was feeling is real would be very validating. Well, ab absolutely, and I think this is the way to do it. I mean, I really think the way to do it is go to the science. Um, we have found this with, uh, you know, so our culture's been in a polarized debate around LGB, which is lesbian, gay, bisexual. It's been in, you know, it's been in a gay marriage debate, et cetera, for decades. And I think what has helped the most to, to help people understand, wait a minute, 5, five to 10% of mammals um, have a homosexual orientation, so not just humans but other mammals. 
So we can see the part of the brain that handled that. And now that we can see that part of the brain, we can say, okay, and it exists in other mammals. So we kind of have to think this through. And I think it has helped our society to understand who a gay or lesbian person is, you know, which is very important because these are millions of people, right? We need to understand who they are and understand. And I think the science helps. And now trans is, of course, completely in the news. And I think it's going to take us a number of years for people to decide, well, let's look to the science. You know, let's get off of Twitter and let's look to the science. Right. And once they look to the science, the same thing will happen. They'll go, oh, okay. Just like it happened with, you know, um, males, females, and engineering careers. For, for, for decades, really, folks have said, well, there's no difference between males and females. So females, you know, we should have 50% female uh, mechanical engineers. And that's what we want and it should happen. Well, now, decades later, you know, we can see that we're not going to have 50% female mechanical engineers uh, because of brain differences, just like we're not going to have 50% males teaching kindergarten. These things are not going to happen. So what we got to say is, okay, what is going on in the brain? And we can certainly get more female mechanical engineers as we modify the way we teach um, calculus and, and all the things that we need for to get that goal, we modify it based on brain research because we understand now the female brain, so we know how to reset our classrooms to help these girls and young women. Similarly, if we want more males in uh, teaching kindergarten, we're going to have to modify the way we, we bring up males and teach males, and we'll modify it toward the brain science, and we'll increase our number, but we're never going to get 50%, and it, the brain science you know, is, I think, showing us that, and I, I think it's telling us we have set these ideological goals that may not be reasonable goals for a society. We can run a society better without a gender war. So what, what would you say to somebody who's listening and thinking, well, I am an engineer and I'm a female and I don't follow a lot of, I don't, I don't put words together easily. And so what, I guess it sounds like there's a spectrum of, you know, it's not going to be just one female brain, but there are people who, you know, end up more in the middle or, how does that work? Yeah, uh, so that's why that's what I meant when I was saying, yeah, you got you got 3.5 plus billion ways to be male brain and 3.5 plus billion ways to be female brain, and around one in five. Um, so taking the example you had of a woman who is a mechanical engineer, um, around one in five um, male and female brains are what I call bridge brains, and so I. I made up the term, but I, of course, got it from people doing primary lab research. I got the idea because we can see about a one in five exception rate for every, you know, anything that I can pull out to say or you and I can talk about here, like the verbal emotive difference, you see about a one in five exception rate around one, uh, well, one scientist says one in seven, one scientist says one in five, um, you know, but I'm going to say one in five just to, to, to that one I think is easiest. Uh, so you you are going to look at couples, and you're going to see around one in five, maybe one in seven, where you have the male is actually better with the verbal emotives than the female in that couple. And she's, she freezes and can't get the words to come and can't remember things while she's in the conflict, but he actually is great at it. So you do have these exceptions. Similarly with female mechanical engineers, that number is around one in five. So whether it's high tech, whether it's coding at Google, you know, whether it's an engineering firm working on an oil rig, wherever you are, you do see 
uh, a one in five to one in seven exception rate of female to male. So, so there are you know millions of female mechanical engineers, and and um, their brains are are female brains, but I call them bridge brains because when they think about who they are, they take like I have tests in my book to see where you are on the spectrum of male and female. Um, they'll say, hmm, yeah, I'm female. I know I'm female, absolutely. But and then in these like ten or twenty categories they think more male. Right. And so what we know is that in utero, that, uh, well, we know nature, nurture, and culture, all three matter, but especially nature will matter here. To become a mechanical engineer, you have to have really well-developed uh, spatial centers, and they're mainly on the right side. Um, engineering requires heavy uh, spatial development in the brain, and a lot of that has to be set in utero, and then, of course, nurture helps it along so that this person becomes the mechanical engineer. But they're set there. Right. And the way we know that is that when, when you know, you have a class of 30 people and you teach 30 people calculus, uh, or all the way early on, you watch how kids play with Legos, you can see the people who have the developed spatial centers in their brain mm -hmm. and who are leaning toward that proclivity. You can see them all the way back in preschool, both girls and boys. Right. And, you know, and then you watch them through with um longitudinally, and you go, oh, yeah, okay, that one became a mechanical engineer. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, My daughter just tried to teach me how to play Minecraft, and she's only six, and I thought I was going to throw up. So I think that means I'm not a mechanical engineer. <laughs> like, ah, I mean, well, you would know who you are. So now, hard. Yeah, I well, I knew that for a number of reasons, but that was just the icing on the cake. I mean, and she was actually pretty good at it, but but I like that. I love that term, the bridge, a bridge brain, because I think what I – you know, in describing a male brain and a female brain, you hate to leave anybody out like, well, that doesn't sound like me. So then where do I fit? You don't want to create a new problem. So I love that there's, you know, there's place for everybody. And that's the bridge brain is, is the one that sort of maybe doesn't fit in the extremes, but it still is real and exists. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You have, you have males who are, who are so sensorial, like they end up in the fashion industry, you know, they, that requires such so many wonderful sensorial centers, and 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 those, a lot of those guys end up being bridge brains, or guys who like. So you and I are both in the counseling profession. I, I would say a lot of males who are counselors um, are bridge brains uh, because you you really got to have lower testosterone. You have to have higher oxytocin, which is the bonding chemical. You have to be verbally motive, right? Because you're constantly listening for word to feeling connections and trying to stimulate word to feeling connections. Um, so there are certain professions, I think, that have more bridge brains on both ends, both sides. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I have a friend, I was thinking while I was asking about the bridge brain, I have a friend who works in technology and like security, technology security, and she is um, definitely a bridge brain as well. So um, I guess I'm curious next, what, so I know you talk in a lot of schools and I, my children go to an all boys school and I saw you speak there, which was amazing. And I know you talked a lot about the benefits of a single sex education, but I'm guessing most people's kids and most people's experiences is that they are in co-ed environments. So how do you suggest that teachers and counselors and parents, and I mean, even as a mom, I have a daughter and two boys, you know, and I'm trying to constantly figure out where they're coming from, but how, what would you, what advice would you give for people who are trying to make sure that everybody's needs are accommodated? 
Yeah, well, what we found on the school side, what we found is that both co-ed and, and single sex can work great. Um, they, they really can. I mean, there's no, it's not an either-or. Uh, what we found is, is two things. One, that training of the teachers is, is crucial um, in both categories, co-ed and single-sex. If, if, if teachers of co-ed have not received training in male and female brains, so how boys and girls learn differently, or the minds of boys and girls, um, those co-ed classrooms... Despite any political stuff or ideological stuff out there, those co-ed classrooms may well not be better than single sex, or may well not be very good. Um, and and part of the reason is, uh, so our data we've been studying this 20 years, um, starting from our pilot back at the University of Missouri, and then moving. So we're in, you know, we've been in hundreds of schools, actually thousands at this point. We gather data, uh, we look at before data and after data, you know, and um, so in terms of achievement, in, ter- in terms of behavior, discipline referrals to the principal, across the spectrum, if you have a classroom of 30, what we've found is without any training in it, um, let's take a seventh grade classroom of 30 kids, we find five males, so at least five males are underperforming in that classroom, and um, uh, five to seven, five to eight are going to be behavior issues for the teacher, the teacher's confused by the behavior. Um, may send them to the principal or, you know, assistant principal. And and especially by seventh grade, we're finding that a lot of those boys start to check out of education. They just find it boring. They check out. They don't do their homework. And then that proceeds through. Um, however, if, if, well, and at the same time, we find one to two girls because contemporary co-ed classrooms right now are, are better fit for girls than boys um, pre-training. Uh, just because of that verbal literacy platform, most of the teachers are female, so they really are very verbal, verbally motive, and they haven't been trained in male brains, so males confuse them, um, uh, or many of them. Okay, that's pre-training, but post-training, so they go through like a one-year process of training and observation and feedback and so on, and, and it's all very positive. You know, there's no, we're very teacher-supportive. It's just a training issue. They go through the training, and then that co-ed classroom, um, you know, year later, the test scores for the boys have gone up. The boys are handing in more homework. They're getting better grades. There are less discipline referrals to the principal, assistant principal, head of school, assistant head of school. Um, right? It's a it's like a pattern, and so so then those co-ed classrooms become you know really really great for both boys and girls, and that's why I'm saying it's not an either or. But right. at the same time, you you have the single sex innovation we call it, where you have um, uh, like most schools publicly now are doing it in their core classes if they do it. Um, the ones who are doing it do it in core classes. There's around 600 or so. Uh, but like your school, San Antonio Academy, um, that's an independent boys' school, so that the whole school is separate. And what we find in those schools is that, that single-sex education works great as, with training, too. Teachers need to know how to do it, or they're overwhelmed by a classroom of 20 or 30 boys or 20 or 30 girls, but as they know how to do it well, and many of them instinctively know how to do it well, um, they they set up an environment where there are gains. So girls, for instance, um, you immediately see, you do use your before and after data, and you immediately see, oh, these girls are showing more leadership, more girls are showing more leadership, especially the intro, introverted or shyer girls are stepping up more, you know, who didn't in the co-ed classroom. Um, uh, 
you get better grades in STEM areas. They're learning STEM better. Uh, you know, so there's specific categories for girls, and then for boys, kind of across the board, we often find these boys are are doing better if they're coming from a, a untrained or you know large co-ed classrooms where they couldn't flourish. Um, here, here they're flourishing, and often they flourish in areas that are gender bender to us. Like, you know, sort of, we got boys now who in seventh grade are loving poetry. They're they're loving performing. Uh, a Shakespeare play, you know, whereas in a co-ed environment, they wouldn't have done that. Uh, so, so I like both modalities, co-ed and single sex, and, you know, they're both massive, so to break them down and talk about them would take decades. But this is sort of a, a snapshot of what happens pre-training and post-training. Um, and then I hope what I've said is, yeah, they're, the single sex innovation, that innovation itself is going to work well with a lot of kids. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I do think the training is critical because it can be all boys, but if you're still going down the same path and having a very high sit still verbal expectation, that can kind of be a setup. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it kind of misses the way boys actually relate. Mm-hmm. Boys don't relate as much in words. They don't show as much love through words um, as people perhaps want them to. And, um, they're actually showing love and learning more kinesthetically, more by pushing and shoving and wrestling. And, you know, and that what people don't understand is that spatial play, kinesthetic play, um, this um, what I call male emotional intelligence, sort of the way that guys do things more than girls do, it's actually just as healthy. It's, it builds just as many brain centers as path, and pathways mm. as verbal. And, and people, people don't think that, but actually that's true. Um, guy pushing another guy against a locker his friend you know yeah that's building as many love pathways as him saying i love you yeah but people don't get that well i don't get that i have two sons and i'm this is what i'm curious it's if you have advice for me so i'm a mom and i have these two boys and they are constantly pushing each other knocking each other over and it drives me insane like how do you how do, <laughs> how do i how do i have more patience and appreciation for this Oh, that's great. Okay, and remind the ages are? Uh, they're just changing. So um, almost 11 and 9. Okay, so let's say 11 and 9. Yeah, well, the first the, the first thing, for people listening, I mean, I think, as you know, it, it does help to, like, kind of get a deep resource on this. And so, like, a book like Saving Our Sons for People, you know, is it, it, people will often say, okay, now I get it, because reading a whole book in some ways often is better than just a couple minutes of sound bites. So I, I do encourage people to get Saving Our Sons to go deep in uh, so that it shifts sort of the intu- the intuition. Um, and then a few things I can say is, one, just step away from it, you know, because the only, only reason to intervene in that very normal behavior would be if there's danger there. So if, if one of them is putting the other in danger or, or property is going to get damaged, you know, it's, it would, uh, then, okay, we're going to step in. Mm-hmm. But I'm a real non-intervention person. I really think non-intervention, unless there's danger, is, the, is a key to good parenting and to raising mature kids because then they work things out themselves, um, and that builds brain centers better than intervention. So that's one. And then two is, is helping them understand what's happening, so talking to them about it um, and, and about the mother-son relationship there and about how okay, you know, there are sometimes they're going to do that when you're around when it, it it doesn't fit 
you and they may just you may have them stop mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh and that's okay too right because when you're not around they're going to do it and maybe with dad they'll do it or with other people they'll do it that's okay i mean it's okay for you to say oh stop this is driving me nuts that's all right but you're and you're explaining it to them okay i understand that you're that this is how you're relating and you know et cetera, et cetera. but yeah. at this moment it's too go much relate upstairs yeah go, go relate upstairs it's okay too much for okay me. and and we have to remember that until recently in a sense, until recently, this wasn't a big problem. It's only recently that that we've sort of stopped saying to kids, "Okay, take that outside. You know, go go play outside." And and they used to do a lot of that stuff outside. Mm-hmm. So, like in my baby boomer generation, we spent most of our lives outside. Uh, so a lot of this stuff that boys were doing as boys was happening outside. It wasn't happening inside our living room or inside our bedroom. Uh, it was happening outside in nature, mm-hmm. and that is a big shift as we've shifted toward a video culture, a digital culture, um, you know, these guys are moving indoors and they're staying indoors and they're staring into screens and that creates its own, its own set of issues that yes. then, that then bleed over into, well, just sit still and stop moving around. You know, um, we didn't as much have that expectation a hundred years ago. Right. Um, we were sort of more nature based then. Now, we've been watching, um, with my kids when I drive them to school, we've been watching the wonder years. Did you ever watch that? Oh, yeah. It's so good. And um, it's like that. Like, they're just out in the yards. And my kids are watching it like it's some, you know, other planet, you know, because the kids are just out running around to each other's houses in the grass, just playing in the street. And um, it does. And my son actually was watching it. And he was like, and then along came video games. And and it's (laughs) true. It's 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 a big game changer. And it's it's hard because I feel like the environment has changed as well. It's not like it was just these video games and then all of a sudden the kids were gone or maybe it is. I don't know, but I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about that, about video games and just technology in general and what, what we should be aware of in terms of our kids brain development and just development in general. I mean, one is um, that follows up on what you're saying there, there has been a shift um, toward this, talk about screens for a minute and then break it down into video games and then into smartphones. Just in terms of screens, we want to know that that the human brain is templated to grow, to grow the pathways we want it to grow, the synapses connection. It's templated to do that in nature, kinesthetically, in relationship, spatially, you know, physically. Um, So a great metaphor for it is that when we have babies, we notice that our babies will take everything into their mouths, right? They don't know yet that that may have germs on it. They're taking everything into their mouths. They're learning the world. That means their brain is learning the world and how to relate in the world, how to understand the world, how to succeed in the world. It's learning it by being out here in nature and being physical, kinesthetic, you know, spatial, connected in nature. So there are no screens. There never were screens. So the human brain is set up to learn that way. So as we add more and more screen time to that growing brain, so for instance, a five-year-old maybe might spend three hours a day in front of a screen. If we do that, we're risking uh, messing with brain development. Uh, and so for, for a 12-year-old, you know, a 12-year-old spending five hours in front of screens could be messing with that brain development. Just we got to know that because right. what's on the screen is not active. What's on the screen is passive. So certain pathways are not going to develop. Certain synapses in the brain are not going to connect. 
um, simply because it's so passive. And even though people will say, well, but it created emotion in me, like I watched a horror movie and it created emotion in me, and that's true, it did, no doubt about it. Um, but still, most of what is happening on the screen is passive, and if people want to prove it, they can they can do a project by watching the you you know they can look at a YouTube video of someone doing the project and say, oh, okay, I get that now. And they can go out and do the project in nature. And what they'll find is they're going to retain more of what when they did the project in nature uh, or down in the basement, you know, a chemistry set project or something, because getting the whole body involved in doing the project is mm -hmm. what's going to really create the brain development. So screen time is itself something to worry about and to think about. Not that screens are the enemy, they're not, but to think about it. Then breaking it down to video games and smartphones. Video games, uh, I definitely recommend no video games on school nights because they're so intrusive. They're intrusive on sleep, they're intrusive on homework, they're intrusive on, on brain development. Well, and, and I've so, noticed just taking it out during the week just takes it off the table. It, I mean, it just causes arguments. You know, are we going to have it? Aren't we not going to have it? I mean, it's just this whole back and forth dance that just can be completely eliminated. Yeah, absolutely. We just say to our kids, it's not good for your brain development. That's it. Right. We're the parents, you know. Right. And um, and then on weekends, okay. And we don't want to say we're anti-video game. We're not. I mean, there are, of course, wonderful video game, games like Minecraft that are, you know, that bridge somewhat between the kinesthetic and the et cetera. There are, there are you know, video games that teach heroism. I mean, most video games, most of what we consider violent video games, are also teaching um good character, you know, good versus evil. I mean, there's actually a lot of good stuff happening in those games. So um, it's just to be careful with them because they, again, invade brain development, and we've got to put them into screen time. On a school night, most on a school day, most kids at, let's say, 10, they're doing some stuff in school on screens, maybe with laptops or, or, or iPads or something, and then they're doing their homework through screens because they got to get on the Internet to do their research, etc. You put it all together, a 10-year-old, doesn't need the video games, right? So video games, again, something to be careful of. And then the, the third thing is, is uh, smartphones. I, I recommend no, don't give a child a smartphone until 13. Um, the Gates family, Bill and Melinda Gates, gave their kids smartphones at 14, so a year later. I recommend it as a rite of passage. You know, you're 13 now, you're becoming more of an adult. So somewhere in there, giving the smartphone, but not before, because... Um, you know, the, once the smartphone is given, then that's an hour or two of screen time right there. And and some people are having their kids play with their smartphones, like when they're one and two years old, just to keep them occupied. And that is, is actually, actually dangerous for brain development. So smartphones are another thing to really look at. Okay. And what about smartphones when it's limited? Because I'm just curious, what is the difference between an iPad, for example, that has apps on it and, and a smartphone? What would you say is the thing that that makes you the most nervous about the phone itself. I think of smartphones as having apps. Did I misunderstand you? No, a smartphone. It, yeah, but I guess, okay, so for me, I have, my kids have iPads and we limit their time on it and they, you know, they have apps on it. And I'm just trying to understand how is it a big jump from that to a smartphone because it's basically just a smaller iPad, isn't it? Or no? Well, are what they, do, yeah, I hear what you mean. Sorry, I, I didn't catch it at first. No, it's I okay. Think, are they, like on the iPad, are they able to do social media and no. texting? No. Well, they are okay, allowed that's... to text, but only me and my husband and like one friend. So is it, okay. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. Is texting your concern? Is it the social media? Is it that they're going to like 
write things. So I try to keep it so it's like their interaction with the public is limited. They can't make phone calls, you know, but I guess that's what I'm, I'm just trying to understand. Is it the actual screen and the games themselves or is it that, that um, like that gateway into the world of connection that, that is, we need to be more careful with? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it would depend in terms of um, how long they're using them and what they're using them for. And you, you just said it. They, it, so they're nine and eleven. Like nine and eleven, they, the, the social media not a good idea, right? Right, because that consumes that brain into instant gratification. They send a text out. Someone has to text back. They, all their their emotions get involved in whether people are texting, and you don't. You're really too young for that. You don't. We don't want them spending an hour or two hours texting back and forth. It's just bad for brain development mm-hmm. at that age. Um, so it's really smart what you're doing there. And then in terms of the um, uh, the what's out in the public, you've you've got some sort of controls on that iPad, so they can't go out into the internet. They can't right, and that's essential for that age group. And I think controls are essential for anything, any device. Those those parental controls are essential because the device is owned by the parents. And you wouldn't let a stranger in your home, so why would you let a stranger in via the internet? You know what I mean? So I, I just think that's 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 a parent's job and right to cut that off until they believe the child is ready, and that's going to be sometime in mid adolescence, maybe. Um, and then there's the screen time itself. So if if we look at that child and that child is is say nine, and you know all this included, including iPad, only spending you know a few hours or less on all of those screens per day and how it has all these other protections, you know, could be okay. I mean, I, I, a nine-year-old I even think is different than an 11-year-old. Like, I wouldn't give the nine-year-old as much screen time as the 11-year-old. Right. Even there, there's a jump. Um, and even uh, just personality-wise, I've noticed that, that one of my kids just responds differently. And I think it's age-related, but just, you know, just wiring can, like, you know, some kids can get overstimulated more easily and then end up with behaviors yep, you're not, not trying to encourage. Yeah. And what's nice oh, too, my absolutely. son was asking me, well, how come I can't get on Instagram? So-and-so has Instagram. And I, I was like, well, good news. It's not till 13. You're actually not allowed per Instagram. And I clearly you can just get on if you want to, but that's the rule, which is kind of useful just to keep um, people off of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so smart of you. You set an age and you just say, this is the rule. You know, and that's it. Well, I'm trying. My son is not making it easy for me, but yes, I'm trying. Thank you for your encouragement. <laughs> it's a battle, isn't it? It's a it battle. It is. Well, my son the other day goes to me, and I'm, he would love that I'm talking about him, but um, we have something installed called R-Pact, and it's just like limits the time that they're allowed to be on, and and um, he's asking me, well, who has this even helped? You know, and I'm like, it has helped me tremendously, you know, because it just takes the burden off of... Um, just having to always be on guard. Well, how long have they been on it? And it just shuts off after a certain amount of time. Um, and it's been super Art. helpful to me, which is great. Um, but I basically can't expect him to be on board and excited about that. You know, like there's, that's fine that you don't like it. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's part of it. There, there's no doubt. I mean, I, when we were raising our kids, we had various rules, like, you know, that rule and, and we had rules and, and they, um, fought them a bit. They fought them definitely at the time. And at a certain point we would just say, okay, just stop. You know, right. we're not going to have this conversation with you anymore. Um, it's, it's not appropriate. We've explained it to you. We're protecting your brains. This is, 
this is the way it is. You, you know, you can go to your room and talk to the wall. You're not going to talk to me about this anymore. Uh, but but that came later when we were just so tired of, right. of the argument. <laughs> and so now our kids, you know, now our kids are adults. They're 25 and 28, and they are, they're, you know, they're older. They're in relationships. They're contemplating families, and they're they're. I think just about everything they say. Okay, remember when you guys did that? Boy, thank you so much. I'm so glad you did that. You know, so they're at the age now where they they are looking back and saying, okay, those rules that we fought, they were good rules, right? Um, because they're now living with the research. They're they're seeing all this research that you and I are talking about now. It's it's all over now, you know. And so they're like, oh, thank you for protecting my brain. And that's what we did with our kids. We just kept saying to them, we are protecting your brain. Can't see it now, but here's what a brain looks like. Here are scans of a brain. We're protecting your brain, and that's that. Right, <laughs> <You know>? right. <laughs> Didn't no, make it I easy, but uh, no, I know. they're and thankful later. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I have loved all of this information. Is there anything that I, I know you know a ton, and you have a ton of resources, which I will make sure I put a link in the show notes about. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you were really hoping you would be able to share? Oh, no, you were great. Your questions are great. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I have one last question before you go. This is what I always ask people at the end of each episode. And it's just in talking about the family brain and keeping families healthy, uh, I always talk about self-care. And I'm curious what you do for self-care to keep your own brain healthy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very important to me. Um, I, you know, I get up every morning. I have my rituals. I, I have a meditation ritual. And I'm Jewish, so I have certain prayers that are Jewish that I say, so it's my whole spiritual ritual. Um, and, and then another part of my spirituality, my self-care, is that I write. So I'm a writer, so this works for me in that I write every morning before I get into business stuff. I'm writing poetry. I'm writing fiction. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm, that's kind of like a, a writing meditation. Uh, and then I also take, I make sure to have every week, um, everyone, if I'm on the road, Speaking, I can't do it, but generally I take a Sabbath day, and that doesn't necessarily mean I don't look at the computer at all, But because some of my writing is on the computer, but what I make sure to do is to be out in nature, so I'm, you know, long walks, et cetera, out in nature, and and then if I'm at a computer, I'm, you know, again, working on the fiction, the poetry, the stuff that takes me out of my regular day and the stuff that connects me to the mystery, you know, it connects me to the stuff greater than myself, and um, and I tend to do that on a daily basis. Also, where I take my one-hour walk, which is my exercise, my power walk. You know, I don't I don't have headphones on or anything. You know, I just kind of try to be. Uh, so these are things that I do. Um, and I guess the last one is sleep. I mean, I have some sleep issues because I travel so much. So I'm I always plan my sleep out. You know, I'm making right. sure to to be, have really good sleep hygiene because um, one of the biggest areas of self-care that we need as adults is sleep these days. So those are some of the things yes. I do. Oh, I love that. Well, I love it because it's fun to hear what people do because everybody does different things. Different things work for different people. But I also think it's fun for people to hear so it can c- encourage them to do it for themselves if they're not, if they, if, if someone stops and thinks, well, I don't, I don't really do much. It's just kind of a, a starting place to start thinking about what you could do to take better care of yourself. Thank you so much. This was great. And I will be sure to post all the links for all of your amazing resources. And I thank you so much for joining us. 
Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode with Michael Gurian. I want to thank Game Day Media for helping produce the podcast and editing out all the places where I stumbled to make me sound smarter than I am. And I also want to thank Jill Goolsby, who does our show notes. And if you're interested in joining the Family Brain family, you can join our Facebook group, The Family Brain. And we also have an Instagram account, which is Family Brain Podcast, where I share different highlights from the show and upcoming episode information. And thanks so much for listening. And if you have any show ideas, I would love to hear about people you would love to hear from. So you can either post those in the Family Brain um, Facebook group or mention it on my Instagram, send me a message on Instagram, any way you'd like to get to me and let me know who you would like to hear more from and learn from. Thanks so much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.